This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson. Today we're talking with Jessica Calarco about her book, Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Indiana University. I I got my PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, and I've been at Indiana ever since. And how did this book come about for you? Uh, This book came about as the product of my dissertation research. I started the work when I was a graduate student at Penn um, and uh, stayed in the field for a little over five years uh, doing research with students in a school, uh, looking at how initially one of the, the the idea that got me into the field was thinking about Annette LaRoe's work and thinking about this idea of, well, what happens when we have middle class and working class kids going to school together? And initially, I thought this was going to be a project that was going to be about uh, social class and friendship, uh, looking at kids from different class backgrounds and seeing, do they learn from each other? When we put kids from different backgrounds into the same environments, into the same neighborhoods, into the same schools, uh, do we see these class these class differences in, in kids' outcomes dissipating? Uh, but that's very much not what I found in the field um, and for various reasons ended up sort of shifting the question a little bit um, and focusing more on sort of these differences that I saw in middle class and working class kids and how they interacted with teachers in the classroom and that became, became the focus of the book. So can you tell us more about how the project changed and then more about how you collected this ethnographic data? Sure. So one of the challenges with ethnographic data is that you don't know what you're going to find before you get into the field. And so there's only so much that you can do in terms of planning ahead of time. I mean, certainly good research design will always get you further than not having a solid research design in terms of knowing what you're going to end up with. Um, But for me, one of the things that I found when I got into the field uh, was that friendship was difficult to study, uh, that especially kids in friendship being in the field, it was hard to hear what kids were talking about with their friends. If I was talking to one group of friends, it was hard to know what was going on with other groups of friends. And so that was always a a, a challenge, essentially. Um, And so what I figured out And and then also one of the other things that I saw early on in the field was that um, friendship was, it's more that what happened in terms of cross-class friendships, that it wasn't as prevalent as I thought it might be, uh, that there weren't a lot of deep cross-class friendships between students from different class backgrounds, uh, that the middle class and working class students, they tended to live in different neighborhoods, they tended to do different things after school, they spent their weekends very differently. Uh, And because of that, the friendships between them weren't particularly deep. I mean, certainly they were friendly with each other at school, but they weren't those sort of deep friendships. Uh, And as a result of that, there wasn't as much cross-class interaction and as much cross-class learning as I thought there might be, uh, which led me to uh, shift my question and try to understand um, how students were interacting with teachers instead. 
Yeah, I thought the um, overview you give in the appendix about your methods was super helpful. So anybody interested in ethnographic data should definitely check it out. Um, so to get us started here, I th hope, was hoping you could sort of set the stage. Um, you begin the book in the intro talking about existing theoretical explanations for class differences. Um, and I was hoping you could talk more about how you particularly use students as active agents in your book. Absolutely. So I think uh, one of the, the, the big contributions of the book is this idea that inequalities come not just from the top down uh, in the sense of it's not just what adults are providing to children in school. It's not just what parents are doing and it's not just what teachers are doing, uh, but it's what the students are doing as well. And we tend to ignore uh, the active role that children are playing in their own lives and shaping their opportunities and shaping their day to day realities. Uh, and so that's something that I tried to be very attentive to in writing the book, uh, this idea that children, I mean, certainly we like to think of children as very innocent, and I'm certainly not putting blame on children. They're part of a larger system. Uh, but I think we better we can better understand those inequalities um, if we look not just at the inequalities that teachers are providing in terms of uh, things like teacher bias uh, or the inequalities that parents are providing in terms of the unequal resources that kids have access to at home or the unequal things that parents are doing on kids' behalf. Uh, but instead, if we try to understand and uh, what, are, what role are kids playing in prompting those lessons from parents or prompting parents to activate those resources or prompting teachers to respond in different or biased ways um, and thinking about how parents and teachers and students all collectively work together uh, to produce and reproduce the kinds of inequalities that we see in school. So this leads us into the first chapter where you give us an example from uh, what is Rocket Day, which a lot of elementary schools have. Um, and you compare Amelia, who her parachute breaks on her rocket, um, and she takes the time to fix it herself, um, compared to Ted, who goes to the teacher. And so here you talk about strategies of influence and strategies of deference. So I was hoping you could sort of give us more information about those and discuss those. Absolutely. So what I what, the, what chapter one is looking at essentially is this idea of, uh, so I talk about in the book to kind of back up a little bit, um, what I talk about in the book more broadly is this idea of a negotiated advantage, um, where essentially what I'm arguing is that um, when scholars and policymakers sort of talk about leveling the playing field in education, we often start at the bottom. We focus on privileged students and sort of the resources and orientations that those students lack. Um, we tend to focus on how those deficits prevent less privileged students from getting ahead. Um, but what I found in my research is that we really need to focus on students and families at the top if we try, to, if we want to try to understand where these inequalities come from, uh, and also what we might do to, to prevent them in school. The kind of the deep class-based inequalities that research has shown uh, over time and again in terms of uh, students is students' outcomes. Um, and essentially, what I find in, in my research is that the privileged families, the middle and upper middle class families, they maintain their privilege by negotiating advantage. Uh, or negotiating advantages. Uh, and essentially what that means is that they're asking for resources and opportunities that go beyond what's fair or required. Uh, and then by persuading institutions to grant those requests, even when those institutions want to say no. So it's it's opportunity hoarding, but with a pressure component as well, in the sense that it's not just that parents and parents and students are sort of trying to keep everything for themselves, but that they're actively persuading institutions to play a role in that as well. Uh, and so what that first chapter looks at with parents is trying to understand and not just what parents do for their kids. As prior research, we, we, we have a lot of research on parental involvement, uh, but we don't have as much on sort of what parent, how parents are interacting with their children and how that leads children to interact in schools. Um, and so what chapter one looks at is this coaching that we see from parents uh, with middle class parents coaching their children to activate these 
strategies of influence, as you were mentioning. And essentially what that means is that the parents are teaching their children to to ask and to keep asking for things, to ask for assistance, to ask for accommodations, to ask for attention, uh, and to keep asking until teachers give in and grant those requests. They teach them to be uh, to treat their teachers as resources in the classroom um, and to worry less about being respectful than about sort of making sure that they get good grades and that they're using their teachers effectively uh, to help them get sort of the outcomes that they desire. Uh, whereas the working class parents instead are uh, instead coaching their children to follow these strategies of deference instead. Uh, and essentially that means coaching their children primarily they I mean certainly they want their children to do well in school but they're much more focused on teaching their children to be respectful and responsible essentially to be good people as opposed to just getting good grades um, and they do that by stressing these strategies of deference teaching their kids to be respectful to be responsible uh, to sort of take responsibility for their own actions uh, whether that's uh, good or bad and, and not asking for help in many ways fa falls into that uh, sort of if they run into a problem in school that their parents expect them to uh, to tackle it on their own rather than treating teachers as resources rather than sort of jumping to ask someone to help or fix it for them. Um, getting kids to work through problems on their own, to be respectful of teachers, to not ask, and especially to avoid anything that might result in reprimand. So one of the things I really like about the book is you tie it back to sort of coaching that the parents give. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I find is that the parents are all sort of drawing on their own backgrounds to some extent, whether that's their experiences when they were in school or their experiences, especially for the middle class parents, volunteering in school and knowing sort of how schools work differently today than when they did when they were kids, um, and also their experiences in the workplace. And certainly the working class parents, uh, by virtue of their schedules and their sort of limited availability, aren't as involved in schools, don't necessarily see how things are different today than when, than when they were themselves in elementary school. And so thinking back on their own experiences, many of them did have bad experiences with teachers worried about sort of getting in trouble, and they didn't want their children to have those experiences themselves. So one of the additional things you do in the book that I really like was these vignettes that you present to the students. So I was hoping you could talk more about those. Absolutely. So one of the things with qualitative research is that it's hard, especially with interviews, uh, to try to get people to talk about their experience in a way that compares cleanly across different groups, what would people do in this situation or, or what kinds of situations have people encountered and would they behave in the same ways? And so one of the ways to get at that is to is to use interview-based vignettes where you present people with a short story or a short uh, description of an event or an interaction uh, that's oftentimes made up, but made up from the context of research. I, I wrote these vignettes, these very short stories, essentially based on things that I had seen or things that I had heard about in the classroom. Um, and then presented each parent and each student with with those vignettes uh, in our interviews. And essentially, they were things like a student who was struggling with a, with a problem on a test or um, a student who left her homework packet at school um, and wasn't able to complete it at home. And kind of and then, then asked the students and the parents, well, what would you do in this situation? Or what do you think that this student should do? Uh, and that's a way to uh, get a cleaner comparison across different groups of parents and different groups of students to try to understand where do we see these patterns? Where do we see these differences between, between parents and students, even within the same family? Family, uh, and then also across different social classes. Do we see patterns uh, there as well? Great. So what did you find? Sure. So what I found in terms of the vignettes was that there were these really stark contrasts between middle class and working class families. Uh, and then in many cases, the, the way that children talked about um, these vignettes directly paralleled what their parents said. That the, the, the kids, interestingly, were, were somewhat more lenient with the students than the parents were in many cases. Um, with the with the working class kids, for example, being, being more likely to say, well, maybe the teacher should let the child off as opposed to the parents who said, well, if you forget your homework, that's just sort of on you. Uh, with the working 
working class parents, at least. Uh, so, for example, with the vignette that involved a student leaving her homework packet at school, I believe it was more than half of the middle class parents said that they would drive back to school to pick up the packet that was left there, um, as opposed to um, and, and the rest of them said that uh, the, the student should be allowed to call a friend and kind of copy down the packet or maybe they would drive them to a friend's house to pick up the packet or make a copy of it, uh, things along those lines. Whereas the working class parents, none of them said that they would drive their students back to school uh, or drive the child back to school to go retrieve the packet that they had lost. And the vast majority of them said instead that it was just sort of they would that the student would have to suffer the consequences that if they went to school without their, if they left their homework at home at school, uh, they would have to go in the next day and maybe it would stay in for recess or get a zero on the assignment. Uh, they really wanted to hold their kids accountable. They wanted their kids to learn that they that this was on them and that that was their responsibility to make sure that they remember their homework. And that played out in the classroom as well. That was consistent with what uh, the way that the middle class and working class parents tended to approach not just these vignettes, but also the way that they talked to their own kids about um, the challenges and experiences that they had in school. So then you move into talking about sort of the expectations from the teachers, and you refer to it as the inconsistent curriculum. And so I was hoping you could talk more about that aspect of your findings. Yeah, so the inconsistent curriculum is this idea that we oftentimes think of institutions as having these very clear sets of rules, and especially cultural capital theory tends to think of institutional rules as relatively fixed, um, where middle the middle class can sort of easily follow the rules, and the middle class doesn't really follow, the or the working class doesn't really follow the rules. Um, but what I find instead is that it's much more variable than that, at least in terms of teachers' expectations. They tended to shift from moment to moment throughout the school day. Things like, uh, should students stay in their seats if they have a question and raise their hand, or should they get up and approach the teacher, um, or should they not? Should they try to work through a problem on their own, or should they uh, ask for help, or um, if they need some sort of accommodation, what should they do in that situation? Teachers' expectations for those things tended to shift across the school day, uh, in part because there were times when they wanted students to be quiet, and there were times when they wanted students to, maybe the teacher was um, busy grading papers and didn't have time to circle around or keep their eyes up to look for hands. And so they would say, well, if you have a problem, come see me instead. Um, and so, but it wasn't always quite as explicit as that. And there were times when it really was very ambiguous as to whether students should approach the teachers or wait in their seats, whether they should raise their hands, whether they should call out. Um, and so essentially the, 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 the idea of chapter two is that that kind of ambiguity really put the burden on students to decode what teachers wanted in any given situation. Uh, and when the burden was on students to decode those kinds of uh, very ambiguous cues or very implicit as opposed to explicit cues, it pushed students to rely more on the coaching that they were getting from their parents at home. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of chapter two is to show why this kind of coaching mattered so much and the, the, the kinds of coaching I describe in chapter one, why those parental messages mattered so much for students in the classroom and how they mattered, particularly in the moments that I unpack later in chapters uh, three, four, and five uh, with assistance seeking and attention seeking and accommodation seeking, uh, trying to understand why students were more likely to engage their class backgrounds in those situations uh, than they were in other types of situations in the classroom. So then in your book, you really get into these negotiated advantages. And the first one you bring up is assistance. And so there's even a quote um, where you talk about, you ask a kid, you know, why he keeps asking a teacher over and over for assistance, even though she said no. And he said, you know, eventually she'll give in. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk about um, what you find in these class differences and focusing on ass assistance. Yeah, so chapter two looks at sort of assistance seeking, so help seeking essentially, uh, this idea that when students are struggling, when they're confused, either about uh, the content uh, that they're learning or about the directions for some assignment, that the middle class kids were very comfortable 
uh, asking for help and asking for help very proactively and persistently. So they uh, would keep asking until the teacher gave them the information they desired. Even on tests, uh, the teacher, the, the, the middle class kids would often go up to the teacher and say, I think I'm doing this right, but can you check this for me? Um, or I think I, I think I know what I'm doing, but can you give me a little bit more information just to make sure that I'm, that I'm going about this the right way? And they would keep asking more and more questions, often wearing the teacher down um, until the teacher sort of gave in and felt like they had to say yes to that request. Um, and that kind of persistence uh, oftentimes passed the point where teachers were overtly look where where they appear appeared overtly frustrated. Uh, the middle class kids would often keep pushing past that point, um, and in, in the process, usually got the the kinds of re- response that they desired. You mentioned in the book that some of your findings match with theory and some doesn't. So can you explain that for us? Sure. In terms of this idea. So I think one of the things that I argue in the book is that um, certainly we see, especially with cultural capital theory, there's this idea of a a matching between um, middle class culture and institutional culture where the, the institution expects students to, to, to teach schools, for example, expect students to behave in certain ways and they reward the students who comply with that kind of behavior. Um, and so certainly on some level, the teachers did expect students to ask for help when they were struggling. And so the middle class students did that. Um, but because of that sort of ambiguous, uh, that, that sort of ambiguous moments or that inconsistent curriculum that I, that I talk about in chapter two, uh, there were certainly times when teachers did not want students to ask for help. And when they then when these requests, whether it was requests for assistance, or accommodations or attention went really beyond uh, what the teachers wanted to provide to students or, or felt expected to provide. Um, and so especially things like asking for help on tests. Uh, there were times when teachers seemed a little bit uncomfortable with the kinds of requests that students made or if they left their homework at home, should they be required to grant a student a reprieve uh, from that sort of missed homework if the student kind of kept pushing and kept asking and kept offering excuses. Um, and so in those moments, it's really, I kind of argue that the cultural capital theory doesn't quite capture what's going on there in the sense that it's not just the students complying with what the with 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 what the school wanted instead the students were really trying to negotiate advantages that went above and beyond uh, what the school was expected to provide or for what the teachers sort of felt com- felt initially compelled to provide or wanted to provide in those kinds of situations so the next negotiated advantage that you explore are accommodations so here you find that working class students see rules as fixed whereas middle-class students are more likely to see rules as flexible. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that this especially played out in terms of um, students' responses to consequences. And so the the middle-class kids really felt like the rules – they sort of could take them or leave them, uh, that they that they really felt like if there was a rule in the classroom that they weren't comfortable with, and or especially a consequence for breaking the rules, uh, that if they didn't like that rule or they didn't like that consequence, that they could argue their way out of it. And they oftentimes were successful in doing that. If they uh, left their homework at home, if they were caught running in the hallways, or if they were being disrespectful to the teacher, or if they um, wanted to uh, turn their uh, project in a week late as opposed to on time, uh, they kind of saw those rules as flexible, as open to negotiation, and they were very comfortable uh, asking the teacher for those kinds of accommodations and then pushing back even if the teacher said no. Uh, and that resulted for them in terms of things like uh, getting extra time on assignments, getting extra help on tests, um, getting out of punishment uh, when they did things that they weren't supposed to be doing. Um, and essentially, they were able to talk their way out of those kinds of rules and consequences uh, in a way that the working class students really didn't feel 
feel comfortable. They really felt like these are the rules and I have to be respectful of the teacher. They worried a lot about the possibility of reprimand, uh, possibly because of the, um, in, in sort of terms of the interviews that I did, it seemed that they, they were cognizant of the stigma against uh, sort of working class families and this idea that they wanted to distinguish themselves as respectable people uh, for first and foremost, that they wanted to be seen as good people. They didn't want to be seen as uh, people who uh, were disrespectful of institutions or disrespectful of the teachers. And so because of that, they sort of tried hard to, to gauge uh, how is the teacher going to respond to this? What are the rules? What does the teacher want me to do in this situation? And they were very cautious to, to avoid breaking the rules when they could. And then even when they did break the rules, they were very the working class students were very quick to accept responsibility and to say, hey, I forgot my homework. Hey, I ran in the hallways when I wasn't supposed to. I'll accept the punishment. Uh, and so I talk in the chapter about some of the implications there for some of the research on uh, inequalities and in things like school discipline um, and how uh, we could see, we could potentially see factors like this with the way that students uh, talk themselves out of punishment or talk themselves out of the rules as, as playing into these larger patterns of inequality that we see in student discipline in schools. I mean, one of the really interesting aspects about these accommodations is sort of the two ends of the spectrum. So you have this one set, one side where there's creativity, on the other side, there's a lot more discipline happening. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah, and that was one of the really interesting things that I found in that chapter as well, with this idea that the middle class students were quick to try to customize uh, their assignments and their projects, uh, that they really wanted a very individualized education. And that's consistent with what their parents wanted as well. Uh, they were very quick, and other research has shown that on the parent side, uh, showing that, that middle class parents and upper middle class parents want to customize their children's education, kind of uh, make it a very personalized experience, make sure that their individual child's needs are being met. Uh, and for middle class kids in the classroom, that often meant asking for things like, well, uh, you told me that I have to do a book report on uh, this set of books, but there's this other book that I'm reading that I really want to write the book about. Or uh, you told me that I have to make the clay pot in art class this way, but I really want to do it my own way instead. And so they would push the teachers to grant them more creativity, to grant them more opportunities to express themselves and to kind of have uh, their individual opinions known um, as well. And that was kind of, whereas the working class students kind of oftentimes they would accept the rules, they would accept the parameters that were set for them. And so because of that, they didn't have as many opportunities for creativity because they weren't asking and, and they weren't often, they often weren't seen by the teachers as creative in that way as well, because they weren't asking for those opportunities. And it wasn't that they weren't creative. It was more that they felt like this is the assignment that was given to me. Uh, and this is the assignment that I have to do. So the last negotiated advantage that you talk about here is attention. And something that I thought was really interesting in the book that you point out is often the research focuses on the negative side of attention-seeking behavior in children. And here you really focus on how important it is to the children. And so I was hoping you could talk more about that. Sure. I mean, we know from research, especially on, on younger children, um, that attention from teachers can be incredibly beneficial. We think of it, as you said, as this, this negative thing, sort of a negative attention seeking. Um, but really, the students all craved positive attention from teachers. They wanted respect and recognition from their teachers. They wanted to share when they were having a bad day or a good day. And they wanted teachers to know what books they were reading at home or what TV shows they were into. And having that chance to connect with teachers, research has shown us, especially for working class kids and poor kids um, and children of color uh, is incredibly important and incredibly beneficial in terms of their academic outcomes and their social emotional outcomes, uh, that having those uh, adults that can provide that kind of positive attention to them is incredibly beneficial. Uh, and what I found was that really um, it, 
in the classroom, the middle class kids were creating opportunities for that kind of attention uh, in a way that working class kids, they were certainly successful in some ways in creating opportunities for attention, um, but they were much more cautious about doing so. Like the middle class kids, they felt comfortable asking for attention at any time in the school day. Uh, They were often the first ones to ask for attention, uh, whether that was if the teacher kind of gave students a chance to share personal stories or to read their work aloud. Uh, It was almost always the middle class students who were sort of of the first movers in those kinds of situations. And so part of the problem with that was the working class kids, they tended to wait to share their own stories until someone else had tried to do the same. They sort of wanted to make sure that it was safe uh, to try to offer a suggestion or offer a a personal story or try to share their work. They wanted to, to, to kind of test the waters first. And they often did that by waiting for middle class students to, to be the first ones to speak up. Uh, but the problem there was that in the classroom, and especially as students moved from third grade to fifth grade and then on to seventh grade, there was just less and less time in the curriculum uh, for students to kind of share their individual stories, to connect one-on-one with the teacher, to have that kind of time during the school day. Um, and so the teachers would often sort of cut things off once they heard one story, or especially if someone uh, was sort of jumping in with a, oh, that happened to me too story, they would say, oh, well, so-and-so already sort of talked about that. And so they would sort of cut students short. Uh, and oftentimes that was the working class students who were trying to have a chance to to share their stories or to connect with their teachers, but they didn't quite have as many opportunities uh, in part because they were waiting to make sure that it was safe, that they wouldn't get in trouble uh, for trying to move things in a different direction than just answering the questions that the teachers posed in class. So then you move into what you call responses and ramifications, and here you really focus on the teachers in terms of sort of um, their experiences, and here you find, for instance, that middle-class parents are much more likely to be more heavily involved to question the teacher's authority and also threaten to move their complaint upwards, you know, to the principal or even further than that. So I was hoping you could sort of talk more about these aspects. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I that I found most interesting about this idea of the negotiated advantage was that the middle class students and parents they were only successful in securing these extra advantages and opportunities because the teachers and the other school administrators were willing to say yes to their requests. Uh, And so that's what chapter six really tries to unpack is this sort of why, especially in situations where teachers felt frustrated with middle-class kids constantly pushing back, constantly asking for more accommodations and more attention and more assistance. Why did they keep saying yes, even when they wanted to say no? Uh, And one of the key things that I found uh, was that teachers were worried about the possibility of pushback. Uh, With students, that pushback often looked like wasting class time. So if students were going to, if if teachers tried to say no, and and middle class kids were going to keep pushing back and keep asking and keep trying trying to negotiate, they could waste five, ten minutes of class time and teachers were often pressed for time. Uh, They often had a lot of material to get through, often more than they could cover in a day or in the school year. Uh, And so they were reluctant to kind of waste time on those back and forth negotiations. And oftentimes it took less time to say yes to students' requests because that let the teachers move on. Uh, But in terms of parents, teachers, one of the working class parents told me uh, really astutely that she felt like the teachers at the school were afraid of the parents um, and that the teachers themselves never put it quite that bluntly. Um, And the middle class parents never talked about it quite that bluntly. uh, But I certainly got the sense from the middle class parents that they felt like they had a tremendous amount of power within the school. And the teachers certainly um, 
the way they talked about the parents, they tried to be very respectful in interviews. And I can certainly understand that. Um, and they certainly did respect the parents a lot. But then they were cautious, even in the interviews that they did with me, uh, to not say anything particularly problematic about the parents. Um, but the, I got the sense that they were definitely concerned about pushback from parents. They were definitely definitely concerned about what parents could do to them in their careers. Uh, there were teachers, I, I talk about Mr. Fisher in the book, who was one of the teachers who was more willing to challenge middle class parents um, when he, for example, had um, strict snack policies about kind of healthy foods only for kids to bring in during snack. And a number of middle class parents sort of pushed back against that and said, well, can we bring in this? Can we bring in cheese crackers? Can we bring in things that aren't on the approved list? Um, and he would sort of hold the line, whether it was about the snacks or about other kinds of things in class. Um, and he sort of developed a reputation among the middle class parents as being what they called, quote, unresponsive uh, to requests and to push back from parents. Uh, and, and so he would get into what he called email battles with parents, kind of constantly going back and forth over things. And he even had one parent who pulled their student out of his class after a week in fifth grade uh, because she felt like she he wasn't being sufficiently responsive to requests and emails and, and, and requests for accommodations. Uh, and so that took a toll on Mr. Fisher. He felt worn down by parents. He, he didn't uh, really enjoy dealing with them in many cases because of the, the pushback that he was getting. He worried about the way that they would affect his career. Um, and so I think that has real ramifications when, when teachers are so concerned about the possibility of pushback from students or from parents. Uh, whether that's parents threatening to get lawyers involved or parents who are uh, just making teachers' lives miserable with constant requests, with constant pushback, constantly challenging their authority and encouraging their kids to do the same. Uh, so certainly it makes sense that teachers would, under those kinds of conditions, just say yes to requests even when they wanted to say no. One of the things that really struck me about your findings in your book is that this can really be applied across the whole education spectrum, right? Like from elementary school till higher ed. Thanks. Yeah. And I, mean, I think these are lessons that I certainly try to apply in my own college classes as well, um, especially this time of year at the end of the, at the, end of the semester when students, I, I tend to get a lot of requests, as, as I'm sure many professors do. Uh, is there anything I can do to improve my grade? Can you give me more points on this test? Can you, is, are you sure that that's what my attendance grade is supposed to be? Um, and I try really hard to set clear policies uh, to make sure that my students know what my expectations are. Uh, and certainly I do have room for leniency, but I tend to be very cautious in, in doling out that leniency um, in terms of the way that I respond to students and trying to make sure that my expectations are clear up front. Um, and then what I, when I am being lenient, that it's not just that I'm pushing, kind of giving in in response to uh, a fear of pushback from students who might hold a lot of sway in the classroom. So here at the end of the book, you explore what you call alternative explanations. And here you're really kind of asking yourself if these differences matter, if they're persisting over time, or if gender and race also matter in your findings. So can you tell us what you found here? Sure. So some of the questions that I got both from reviewers of the book and from people that I talked to along the way of doing this project are questions about like, what's really going on here? Is this really about social class? Are there patterns related to gender or race or uh, students' uh, temperaments or sort of other things that might be contributing to this? Um, and then also sort of do these patterns is, or is it about sort of the particular school that you happen to study? And so what that chapter tries to do is really unpack uh, what I found in terms of those other dimensions of students' students' lives and identities and experiences uh, and showing how certainly those other factors mattered. There were ways that gender mattered in the classroom. There were ways that race and ethnicity mattered within the schools. Um, and though certainly the, the sample that I included was um, 
overwhelmingly white. Um, and, and in terms of studying race and ethnicity, uh, it was problematic to draw too hard of conclusions because uh, the school had um, middle class Asian American students and working class Latino students, um, but didn't really have much mixing within racial, much socioeconomic mixing within racial and ethnic groups, which made it hard to really make hard conclusions about uh, the relative role of, of race and class or how those two, two things operated uh, together to influence students' experiences. Um, and so I kind of offer some tentative conclusions, mostly drawing on existing research to talk about how um, race and class uh, mattered together, um, but then also how I, I think class in particular mattered um, with, this, with this kind of negotiating uh, that I saw among at least white middle class students uh, in the school, uh, though also to some extent among Asian American middle class students as well. Um, and so I think that and the, the chapter also looks at sort of would this happen differently in different types of schools? How might the particular configuration of schools um, that I that I observed uh, be factoring into the kinds of patterns that I observed? And my sense is that this is I mean, certainly I, I can't say firmly without doing this kind of research in other schools that the patterns would work exactly the same way. Uh, but my sense is that having the kind of school where the working class students were aware of what the middle class students were doing uh, and, and had the sense that this ha this behavior is happening. Um, so certainly that would seem to me to be a case where, if anything, we would see the, 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 the least differences between middle class and working class students in the way that they were behaving. Um, and yet in this case, we still saw these differences persisting in terms of how middle class and working class students were we're dealing with challenges in the classroom and asking for things uh, from their teachers. Um, and the working class students, when they would talk to me in interviews, would say, well, I just I don't think that's respectful. I don't think that's the right way to act, even if they were aware of what their middle class students were doing. And um, and even if they understood it and saw that the benefits that the middle class students were getting from those kinds of requests, uh, they were really reluctant because of the training that they got from their parents at home, because of the way they saw themselves in the classroom and because of the respect that they had for teachers. They were really reluctant to engage in those behaviors themselves. Great, thank you. So in the end, you sort of sum up by concluding your findings, but something that I also really liked from your conclusion is that you sort of take a, you know, a bigger view, basically, um, how this matters for how we research inequalities, how it matters for the classroom, how it matters outside the classroom. So I was hoping you could give us some of your big takeaways here. Sure. I mean, I think one of the big takeaways that I had in the book was that we oftentimes think about inequalities from a deficit perspective, where we, we tend to focus on what are the working class students either not getting or doing wrong uh, that are leading them to have worse outcomes in school. And so one of the key things that I, that I argue in the book is that really the answer here is not to just teach working class students to act more like their middle class peers. The working class kids are the ones who are being respectful of the teachers, who are in more cases following the rules and trying to do their best to uh, to do what the teachers are asking of them. And it's the middle class kids and the middle class parents who are really going um, outside of the bounds of what schools are expected to, to, to provide and, and what's really fair to expect schools to provide. Uh, and so what I argue instead is that we really need to find ways to empower teachers uh, to be able to say no to requests that go beyond what's fair or required uh, and to make sure certainly that they are also being sensitive to the needs of working class students, to understand that students come to the classroom with different levels of comfort engaging with teachers, different levels of comfort sort of asking for what they want. Uh, teachers can make their expectations as explicit as possible uh, so that we avoid those sorts of ambiguities that lead students to rely more on their class backgrounds. Because when teachers were more explicit, I saw much more similar behaviors from middle class and working class students, that the, the middle class students uh, didn't tend to ask for more when teachers were very clear about what they were willing to provide um, in a situation. And the working class students felt more comfortable asking for support uh, when teachers made it very clear how to 
ask for that support and what what kinds of support they were willing to provide and when they were willing to provide it. Um, and so there's things that student that teachers can do to help to level the playing field, uh, both in terms of reaching out to the working class students uh, and also making sure to say no to the to the requests that really aren't fair and really aren't required, uh, and especially the ones that would kind of uh, give middle class students a direct leg up over their working class peers. And so that's kind of the one of the key takeaways I think is this idea that we we shouldn't approach uh, these inequalities just by teaching the working class students to act more like their middle class peers or, or expecting working class parents to just be more like their their, their middle class peers. Um, and, and so I think that's that's part of the, the takeaway. And then also this idea that we tend to think about things like cultural capital, um, as I was mentioning before, very much in terms of things like compliance. Um, and so what we see here is that the middle class wasn't just complying with the institutions and what they expected, that they were really uh, going outside of the bounds of what the institution expected and even in ca many cases what the institution wanted, uh, that they were pushing back against the institutions, pushing back against the teachers uh, in ways that the teachers often felt threatened by and felt sort of um, burdened by. And so thinking about, is this really cultural capital or is this another way uh, that culture matters in terms of inequalities and how might this sort of negotiated advantage uh, be a key way that the, the middle class is uh, securing opportunities uh, within institutional settings and not necessarily doing so in a way that just complies with what the institution wants. Great, thank you. So today we've been talking with Jessica Calarco about her book, Negotiating Opportunities. So what are you working on now, Jessica? Uh, so I'm working on just getting a new project up and off the ground. Uh, this project is going to be looking at how social or social networks matter for parenting decisions, uh, especially decisions, things like, uh, so this will be focusing more on early childhood uh, and looking at uh, pregnant women and following them over time, trying to understand some of the decisions that they make early on in children's lives, things about vac vaccines, things about breastfeeding, uh, things about uh, safe sleep habits, uh, things about diet and exposure to things like screen time, uh, how parents make those decisions, and especially the role that social networks play uh, in shaping those decisions and shaping those decisions differently along social class and racial and ethnic lines. Thank you again for being with us here today. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great to chat with you. 